Chapter 12 of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Ullman. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter 12. After eight years, one morning in May, 1898, a gentleman was driven to the Tavistock Hotel, Convent Garden. He alighted and entered the house, and having viewed his bedroom, proceeded to the coffee room and opened the London directory. His beard and mustache were scissor-trimmed. He wore his hair short, but this was white, whilst his beard was iron-gray, dappled with white. The change which the Earl of the Breaker had wrought in his face had been confirmed by time, and no two men could have been more dissimilar than Frank Reynolds, who had married Lucretia Lane in 1890, and the Francis Reynolds, who had driven to the Tavistock Hotel on the morning of May 14, 1898. He turned to the addresses under the heading, Chip Stow Place. The house in which Mrs. Lane had lived was now occupied by one William Johnson. He looked down the list of court addresses and found so many Mrs. Lanes that he easily saw he might spend a fortnight in driving about all over London only to fail to verify the individual he had in his mind. He shut the immense volume and went to eat the breakfast he had ordered. There was no need for him to report his safe arrival to the owner of the Flying Spur. Mr. George Blaney. Long before, whilst in Australia, he had learnt that this gentleman, like his ship, had gone under, and that Mr. Blaney, as a man and owner, was as extinct as the crew who had never returned to take up their wages. Whilst he breakfasted, he thoughts were with his wife. He did not intend to justify Goodhart's prophecy that he would seek her out if living and endeavor to woo her back to him, but he most passionately desired to know if she were alive, where she was, if she was married, and if she was well or badly off. The mold of his character was very visible on his face. You witnessed habitual melancholy, a habit of thought that was often carried into the recondite, deep sensibility that looked that practice of patient paints upon the human countenance, with a firm cohesion of the whole in a spiritual tissue of resolution. This, in a brief survey, the gifted eye could easily construe. No, it was not his intention to woo his wife afresh, if she was still in a state of life to be won. But he could not be in London, he could not see and hear and smell and taste London, without the sensations thus excited attacking memory and troubling it into the presentment of hot and oppressive images. The marriage, the delirious refusal to see or have anything to do with him, his visit to a solicitor, the stratagem that had decoyed her to the ship, her insensate, unwomanly, unwifely aversion whilst on board, and the inglorious victory of her departure at Falmouth. After breakfast, he called a cab and drove to the office of a shipping paper off Grace Church Street. He said to a clerk, 
Do you know if there is any reference to the loss of a full-rigged ship called the Flying Spur in one of your back numbers? What date, sir? She was lost February 2nd, 1891, but I could not tell you the date when the news was published. They'll know all about it at Lloyd's, said the clerk. I want to know if the news was published in the papers. You're welcome to turn over those back numbers, sir, said the clerk, eyeing him with some curiosity and indicating a table on which reposed a number of bound copies of the journal going back some years. Now Reynolds never had doubt in his mind that all hands of the ship's company, saving himself, had perished, in which case, having regard to his own situation on the island, the ship's loss could only have been assumed. She would have been posted at Lloyd's, ranked amongst the missing, and then dismissed from the commercial memory as something extinct. But the boat of the Esmond, it will be remembered, had gone away to intercept a distant ship on October 2nd, 1891, and it was possible that her people had been taken out of her, in which case they would report that the flying spur had been lost off the island of Santo Cristo, and that out of her whole crew the captain alone had survived by being cast in a life belt upon the island. So Reynolds turned to the volumes containing the issues of November and December, 1891, and to the succeeding volumes of 1892 and 1893. These he painfully and laboriously examined through a pair of spectacles, and spent nearly two hours in this study, but found not the smallest reference to his ship or her loss, nor to the escape of the Esmond's crew that had left the island. It was clear that this, that Captain Modell had admitted to report the circumstances of Reynolds' escape and Reynolds himself had been silent. The clerk said there was no fee. The volumes were for convenience of the public, particularly subscribers, and Reynolds departed. It was quite certain that if the Shipping Gazette, which records everything about the merchant service, had made no reference to the loss of the Flying Spur, all papers in any way likely to meet the eye of Lucretia would be and had been silent also. Next morning, Reynolds traveled by railway to Bayswater, and he walked from the station to Chepstow Place. His breath grew somewhat difficult as he approached the house. All that had happened between pressed heavily upon his heart in a sensible weight of intellectual atmosphere. This was the pavement they had walked on when they returned from church. She, with arms hanging by her side, as inflexible mute as the corpse in a grave. What had provoked this cruelty in her? Why had she married him? Everything was present as though they all were of today. But the chasm demanded for its passage a bridge of size that had taken eight years to make. And was it for him, a husband scorned, humiliated, forsaken, on one side to measure that length, or for her, on the other side, to cross it if alive? He summoned the servant and was admitted. The card he gave her was plain, and on it he had written, Mr. John Goodhart, Tavistock Hotel, Convent Garden. He was shown into the parlor. This was the little room in which Mrs. Lane had displayed those refreshments of which the wedding guest had not partaken. The image of Lucretia shaped itself with the velocity of memory upon the eyes of his spirit. He was alone, 
and there she stood in the doorway at the doorway at the table as she had again and again stood tall nobly molded with a light that should have been love in the luminous gloom of her eyes with glowing hair and firm lips and a demeanor of tranquillity which he had long ago translated into passionless nature ice cold in chastity bleak and sterile by refrigeration of virginal impulse a beautiful flower without odor a lovely star without heat a woman into whose creation entered many of the perfections of her sex but from whom he had been withheld the sanctifying touch that creates womanliness mr william johnson walked in a white-whiskered man, and bald, who apologized for presenting himself in a dressing-down. This house, said Reynolds, after a few sentences, had been exchanged, was occupied a few years ago by a widow named Lane, Mrs. Lane. Yes, I took it after her death. Oh, she is dead then? exclaimed Reynolds, with the calmness that betrayed the preconcerted arrangements between the nerves and the understanding. Yes, I happen to know something about her. As a matter of fact, I am the late manager of the insurance office in which Dr. Lane purchased an annuity on the joint lives of self and wife. There was a Miss Lane? I believe there was. Do you know if she's alive? I'm afraid I can't tell you nothing. I merely happen to remember the name of Lane as a client of the office. I know a friend of hers, said Reynolds, who wants to hear about her how shall I go to work to obtain the information? Mr. Johnson studied Reynolds' face with some attention, with the attention of a man who has passed his life in taking lives. It was an interesting, a striking, in all respects, very remarkable face. I rather fancy, said he, after a little reflection, that if you were to call it by old office, they will be able to give you the name of Mrs. Lane's solicitor who had something to do with her will, for I remember that he wrote to us about the annuity. I am greatly obliged. How long has Mrs. Lane been dead, do you suppose? I took possession here in February 1895. I was her immediate successor, and as these houses do not long remain empty, we may assume that her death was then comparatively recent. Reynolds bowed and left the house. After transacting certain business at the London and Westminster Bank, he walked to the insurance office, which was within a couple of streets. The letter book was examined, and the address of the late Mrs. Lane's solicitor found. He was Mr. J. Wembley Jones, Lincoln's Inn Fields. It was too late to call that day. Reynolds returned to the hotel. A man... Alone in London, without friends or acquaintances, seldom feels lonelier than when in a London hotel. The bigger the hotel, the vaster the desert, the wider the amplitude of the swing of the pendulum of dullness. And perhaps what is least agreeable of London in flavor, sound, and sight, you will discover by putting up at a hotel in Covent Garden. The prevalent property of the district is cabbage. The residual music is the Hebrew throat of the salesman and the bray of the coaster's donkey. The climate is fog and the prospect strictly limited. Reynolds 
had felt with crushing severity the burden of solitude imposed by his island. But the feeling of loneliness which depressed him that evening as he, as he sat now in a coffee room, now in the smoking room of the hotel, through differing in kind, was not in degree very remote from the feeling that he had weighed him down in Santo Cristo. Was his wife alive? He could form no reason to suppose her dead. He assumed her living and logically thought, therefore, of her as alive, and it must be added alone, for to presume her married in the belief that he was dead was to mangle and ruin his theory of her, that bayonet-keen principle of chastity that had kept him at bay, that had dispatched him to a remote part of the globe, as much a bachelor as if there was not a woman in the world, must surely have kept another off all others off, unless, indeed, the cold and pitless weapon had sunk at the catcall of poverty, or to the rainbow of elegance of title and estate. But it was his habit to think of Lucretia as alive, alone, and this conception working in him as a truth troubled him by the creation of a subtle yearning, a straining of mind which his consciousness refused to heed, because he had resolved not to seek her nor to have relations with her. But desire was in him, nevertheless, as pain is in sleep, causing the suffering to moan and toss. He sent in the same sort of card he had delivered at Chepstow Place. Next day to Mr. Wembley Jones in Lincoln's Innsville and entered an office where he was received by a tall, thin, whiskered man with a big hook nose and a Caspian Sea of shirt front on the top of which, under stiff stand-up collars, sat a black bow. He took a chair, and Mr. Wembley Jones examined him with keen attention. I have ascertained, Mr. Reynolds, that you were the late Dr. Lane solicitor. That is so. Dr. Lane apparently had a daughter, continued Reynolds, who became Mrs. Reynolds, and as I have a communication to make to her, I should feel obliged if you would give me her address. Mr. Wembley Jones summoned a clerk from the adjacent office. Find out if you can, in the letter book, Mrs. Reynolds' last address, the Mrs. Reynolds who is the daughter of Dr. Lane. I'll explain to you as briefly as I can the object of this visit, said Reynolds. I happened to be off the island of Santa Cristo, be calmed, and sent the maid ashore to examine and report with respect to fresh water and provisions. When was that, sir? Last year. Mr. Rembley Jones bowed. The mate returned and bought a letter which he said he had found nailed to the lid of a chest in a cave. It was addressed to the Honorable Stranger. It contained 150 pounds in banknotes and a letter signed by one Francis Reynolds, begging the finder to send the money to his wife, Mrs. Reynolds. Here Reynolds pulled out a pocketbook and seemed to refer care of Mrs. Lane, Chepstow Place, Bayswater. These are the notes, said he, taking them from his pocket book. Have you the letter? I put it into a locker for safekeeping, and when I wanted it, I could not find it. These notes were nailed to the lid of the chest. 
but you'll observe that they are not perforated said mr wimbley jones blandly but with professional suspicion colouring his smile the notes were folded thus said reynolds with dramatic emphasis and a warm cheek the envelope was large the nail obviously missed the notes how else should it have been pray do you know what has become of francis reynolds inquired the solicitor reynolds shrugged his shoulders do you think that he died on the island a man who writes such a letter as i read is not far from his end was the answer but all the same he, he might have been rescued certainly in the face of this evidence he would not in the eyes of the law be considered dead how about the disposal of the money sir said reynolds with an air of carelessness as though he wished to complete his mission without further trouble at that moment the clerk entered with the letter book yes said mr wembley jones after humming through the impression of a letter which the clerk had placed before him mrs reynolds had occasion to write to me about an investment under her father's will the date i see is june eighteen ninety six her address then was mrs reynolds ladies school cathedral place canterbury I have not heard of or from her since. Will you take charge of this money on her account, said Reynolds, with the tranquility of a man with many months of ocean solitude had converted into an admirable artist in self-control and facial tokens. I'll first ascertain if she's in Canterbury, answered the solicitor, and then communicate with you, he added, picking up the card. You will then instruct me or act for yourself as you think proper. Did the officer you sent on the shore observe no signs whatever of human life on the island? The place was empty of life as that of a hat, said Reynolds. It is important that Mr. Reynolds should be made acquainted with what you have told me. It might rescue her from a very disagreeable position. We cannot be convinced by your statement that Francis Reynolds is dead and his wife should be advised not to entertain the idea of a second marriage for some time to come. Reynolds inclined his head as though he should say, This is no business of mine. Are you making any stay in town? inquired the solicitor. I shall stop at the hotel for a few days. I think, Mr. Goodhart, you shall hear from me when I have news to send you about Mrs. Reynolds. Reynolds rose, bowed, and walked out. Mr. Simpson said Wembley Jones to the clerk, who had been a silent auditor since his arrival with the letter book did you ever see a more remarkable looking man never so i was thinking so that man said the solicitor has known trouble he has suffered hardship what's his calling sir why the sea i suppose he talked of being off an island and sending his mate on shore an interesting face almost fascinating a very honorable man too to bring the handsome sum of a hundred and fifty pounds in notes for remittance to a stranger. He drummed on a table for a moment, lost in thought, with his eyes planted on the window, like a doctor thinking of a prescription whilst the patient waits. Send Mr. Wilkins here, please. Five days after his visit to Mr. Wembley Jones, Reynolds received a letter from the gentleman informing him that Mrs. Reynolds had left Canterbury in October 1896 and taken a situation as governess at Margate. 
She was there in August 1897. He had written to her at Margate, but down to the present had received no reply. Reynolds, in answer, said he would place the amount in his bank, that letters addressed to him at the hotel in Covent Garden would be forwarded, and that on his hearing that Mrs. Reynolds' address was known, he would send Mr. Webley Jones a check. All this seemed little better than beetle talk, but it is necessary as containing particulars which are links that must be made visible to this chain of sequences. Two facts Reynolds had come to discover. First, that his wife was alive, next that she was poor. Poor she certainly must be, because had her income been sufficient to enable her to live without work, she, though a clever, well-read, even accomplished woman, by which is meant that she sang well, played the piano well, danced with splendid grace, could speak French and read in German, a language she had taught herself and had covered a range of English literature which very few young ladies had ever heard about, was one of the last of her sex to have dreamt of offering her services in a walk of life whose thankless and underpaid toil she would speak of with pity and aversion. Evidently, she had started a school and failed. He was moved to think of her as alone and struggling, as alone and poor in a world where to be poor is to entitle man or woman to the sympathy of the mongrel dog, that despite fleas and the mange is taught by nature how to earn a living, to rejoice in the sunshine and exalt with complacency its stumpy vibrio of tail. And the emotion thus induced quickened yet that subtle and finely burning desire which his reason declined to recognize. But then he would argue in varying terms over and over again, if suddenly she found me loathsome enough to abandon eight years ago, when I was comely and younger, how shall it be now if she meets me and sees me with this broken face, this changed and charged expression, if she should see the man she had shrunk from and hissed at, and at and forsaken clothed in a trunk of flesh, molded by the finger of the breaker and painted by the viewless brush of the island spirit of solitude. In short, he feared to meet her, dreading the horror and wrath which would flame in him and consume him and make a pitiful wrench of him. If, forgiving the past, she spurned him and turned from him as at Chepstow Place, as on board the Flying Spur, as at Falmouth, when she departed without giving him a single look. When he was on the island, his heart clamored for the civilization of great cities. His dreams were of crowded streets and bustling shops. Now that he was in the middle of the greatest city the world has ever probably known, he began to pine for the repose of the country or the hundred pictures of the coast. He was consistent, however, in his dislike of London. He might have been likened to the case of a man who, having received a blow on the head, loses a sense. It may be taste or smell or both. Reynolds associated London with his marriage. His marriage was intellectually a knock on the head and an extinguished all capacity of relishing London. It was not because he believed his wife to be in Margate. 
that he resolved to spend a month or two in Ramsgate. As you have just heard, he trembled at the idea of meeting her, not because he did not most passionately desire to behold her, but because he feared the moral, the ruining consequences to himself of an encounter. But even supposing Lucretia to be in Margate, the town was as far from Ramsgate as Ramsgate from Deal, or Deal from Dover, and there was no more reason why he should come across her in Ramsgate than if he remained in London or vindicated his prenuptial aspirations by making the tour he had planned for his honeymoon. He liked the old town of Ramsgate. He had spent many a holiday there in his boyhood. His recollection of an embracing pier, the bright and folded water of the harbor reflected the red or brown of the drooping sail of the smack or collier, the sparkle of windows looking eastward over the edge of the low white ramparts, the placid hours he had passed in fishing over the side of a boat when to the thrilling tug at the baited hook he would strike and haul up hand over hand a place as big as a turbot who made sport choice and delicious by the resistance of its heavy, curved shape in the water. His recollection of these and more, when life was young and blood romped through his heart, and the horizon of the passing year was gay with the pennons hoisted by the hope, or remembered as pleasures freshened him to the very spirit, as the salt-sweet breath of sea vivifies and enriches, to the inmost depth of existence, and one morning about three weeks after his arrival in London, he packed his portmanteau and drove to Charing Cross Station. It was the month of June, a pleasant month in old England, nowhere pleasanter than by the sea when the ocean blends her gifts of weed and shell and sand with the color of odorous produce of the land. In Australia, he had added 4,000 pounds to the value of Goodhart's bonds by prudent speculation or wise investment, and his income was about 600 a year. On this amount, a single man may, if he is discreet, make a figure. He cannot indeed run a theater or start a London daily paper or race or keep a yacht, but he can, for instance, when he arrives at such a place as Ramsgate, treat himself to the best hotel and this Reynolds did, putting his name down as John Goodhart. This hotel is situated on the East Cliff and bears the name of a bland old politician who is long a Lord Warden and remembered for his affirmation that on the advice of his doctor he dropped port for a year, at the end of which the gout had not only returned in full force, but had made room for seven even worse fiends so that he not only had to writhe under his disease, but also under the memory of having lost 12 months of port wine to no purpose. Reynolds arrived in town for the table d'hote, and then strolled out to view the place. Ramsgate, it is said, has been greatly improved by its new road and the disappearance of parts of the old town. The improvement is much the same as that made by the section of a red brick, cherry-built villa in the midst of houses where architecture is Tudor or older yet, where everything but this flaunting place 
of worse than cockney impertinence with his farthing affections of porch and pillar its carrot-haired roof and impolent assertion of bay window where everything else breeds in a poetry of soft and happy keeping style blending with style shadow with shadow decay with decay until the soft and pure rhythm the adjustment of harmonies the gradual but beautiful revelation of meaning both in man's work and time's relation with his work makes an idol or sonnet of the spot this was much about reynolds judgment of the improved ransgate he viewed as he strolled with memory eagerly and foundly painting the old sea town with its gap of harbor street betwixt two cliffs like dumpton gap a little way behind its terraces of chalk in those days undisfigured by the railroad station and the black hole of tunnel that belches sulfurous vapor at the glaring advertisements hung up just outside its spacious stage of sands on which were enacted a hundred agreeable buffooneries the fat women screaming with laughter on the galloping donkey the milkman limping under cans and yelping goat milk fresh from the cow the sweet song of the brandy ball man the orgies in the surf where shrieked the timid and stood still the brave where elderly men fell out of the machines like little colleges and disappeared in foam, where figures of blubber bobbed and vanished, where girls who, when apparelled for the esplanade, looked a dream of fair women, emerged in shrunk and clinging shapes, pallid, hair-wrenched, and sexless to the male eye. It was the hour of sunset. Over the levels, between minister and sandwich, the red light was streaming in pennons of glory with certain large clouds over the town reverberated and dispatched in a delicate orange into the liquid velvet softness over France. Yonder, opposite Deal and Walmer, were the downs with a sea line covered with small, dim sketches of ships motionless in the distance. Reynolds leaned upon the rail that stopped people from falling over the cliff and gazed at the remote prospect of water. A headwind had forced him to bring up there eight years ago, in the flying spur, with Lucretia on board disdaining him, acting indeed as though she loathed him, eight years ago. Right opposite Acadia was slowly flapping along for Ramsgate Harbor. Her sails were colored by the sun glow and they panted like the human breast as she strove with the stream of tide. Eight years ago, where was Lucretia now? Tomorrow he would go to work to find out if she was at Margate, and if she was in that town, he would instruct Mr. Wembley Jones to send her the money for which he would remit his check. He could not endure to think of her as alone and poor and struggling. How could he tell but that she might be in actual want? The dusk drew down, found him watching the sea. A few people paced the esplanade to and fro. The light of the Goodwins sparkled, and the Calais lantern glanced its lighting into the distant gloom. Yonder lurid spark is the brilliant star which the Frenchman's kindly hand had set upon the forehead of his rock of greenness. A band was playing somewhere, but not too near to trouble the weaving mind. Lights like the glowing tips of cigars burnt at the ends of the piers. 
whose dark curves framed a gleaming shadow, restful with slumbering shapes of moored craft, a rest not broken by the vision of white wing creeping from seaward betwixt the pierheads like a wreath of mist in the sad color of the dawn. What was the light making the dark atmosphere? Look sultry with tincture as of volcanic vomit beyond the good ones. It was the rising moon. She lifted a swollen, distorted bulk, freed herself from the clinging draperies of the atmosphere, and soared into, the, into an orb of brilliance, rolling down the water under her fan-shaped river of brightness. Someone stopped just behind Reynolds. He turned to see who it was who stood so close, and behold his wife in the clear glow, watching the moon. End of Chapter 12 Recording by Gary Ullman, Middletown, New York